to another episode of our podcast, Stern Chats. So Sherry, who do we have on the show today? We're really lucky to have Professor Nate Pettit on the show today, who was recently named a 2017 Best 40 Under 40 Professor by Poets and Quants, the leading resource for complete coverage of graduate business education. Professor Pettit has not just one, but two master's degrees under his belt, as well as a PhD in management from Cornell University. As one of the youngest professors at Stern, he teaches undergraduates and graduate students in areas of management and organizations and leadership. It wasn't always clear that Nate would end up in academia as he dabbled in financial services and incredibly professional bodybuilding. Well, that is a lot to unpack, Sherry. I guess we better jump right in then, right? Yes, we should. Before we get into the story, I want to tell the audience that if you think you have a great story to tell us or you know someone that has a great story, give us an email at sternchats at gmail.com. That's our email address, sternchats at gmail.com. Also, we usually post some great pictures of all the guests we have on the show. If you want to see those, follow us on Instagram, at sternchats. Okay, Sherry, should we start the show? Let's start the show. Cue that music. Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Fericchio and Sherry Holt. All right, welcome to Professor Nate Pettit. Thank you for coming. We're so happy you could be here. Thank you, Sherry and Frank, for having me. I'm yeah, he's thrilled. actually a, a listener. Yeah. I, in fact, I, I brought it up to you guys. Yeah, and I. Yeah, sure absolutely. Did. Yeah. did a little promotion in class the other day. You've been my companions on many a train ride from Morristown to uh, Penn Station. Oh, fantastic. Great. Yeah. So just for people that don't know you, like a radio audience, can you give us like a 20-second overview? Sure. I'm a assistant professor of management and organizations at Stern. I don't know why that. I had to include that last yeah, part. Yeah, they knew. We're obviously here. Um, <laughs> and this is my sixth year um, on the faculty. It's my first job out of grad school, and I'm still kicking around. And you recently won quite an accolade, uh, Poets and Quants 40 Under 40 Best Professors. That's yeah, exciting. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I feel less than 40 years old. <laughs> That's really the big takeaway of the whole thing. When Poets and Quants says you're uh, top 40 under 40, by the way, they could have done a top 50 under 40. I guess that wouldn't have been as punchy a title. Definitely not. 50 yeah. under 50? I feel bad for number 41 through number 50. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. Because due to like... So close. So close. But due to marketing, they will not be recognized on the internet, no. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the metric they use to, to judge you on the Poets and Quants list? What are we talking about here? Great question. It's a big black box. <laughs> it's a big <laughs> black box on that one. And given that I'm on the list, I don't know the level of credibility to the scoring <laughs> system. Well, it must... I mean, you must be a pretty good professor to be recognized by a nationally important MBA ranking website. Yeah, it's, it's definitely nice. It can't hurt. I think it has more to do with teaching. I think it has a lot to do with uh, the extent to which that some students speak up about the fact that they like your class or that you give time to them or that they, they feel as if you care. Um, and which from my perspective I think is probably the right metric when you're talking about a place like Poets and Quants where future MBA students are looking to see where they would like to go. Certainly. Yeah, no, it's it's. I think it's the number one resource for all things graduate schools and you know, staff. What, were you, what number are you on the list? Do you, do you know? Oh, it, it's got to be in the 30s somewhere. You're in the 30s? <laughs> no, I mean, it's not ranked within that. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, so you just like a, a batch. So what, what classes are you teaching right now? So I'm fortunate enough to teach the uh, full-time MBA student leadership and organizations class. The overarching themes are going to be around this idea of the ability to analyze an organization from an open systems perspective. But then within that, we, we all tend to go over something related to sort of structure and design of organizations. And then we do things to greater or lesser degrees on group and interpersonal psychology with motivation and feedback and decision making. And some of us do things on creativity and conflict. Full disclosure, both Sherry and I are currently students in that class. Yeah, you are. Yes, unfortunately <laughs> in different sections. Yeah, yeah. I think it's better that you're in different sections. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, like in our week, we basically have Professor Pettit and Stereo. Yes. You know, this is. I think this is an interesting thing for people to know is that we found out that you actually have competed in bodybuilding while being a professor here at Stern. Yeah, I did. Could you elaborate on that for us? Sure, sure. This wasn't something that was planned. So while, while being very physical and, and disciplined and working out was a huge part of my life up until I was probably 26, I guess. Once I started my PhD program, I essentially abandoned all of that because I thought academia is hyper-competitive. There's you know far fewer people getting PhDs in my field than are getting jobs, much less tenure-track jobs at really good universities. And I was like, I am certainly not the smartest guy out there. It's like, I'm going to need to work. Like, there's there's no two ways around it. So I, I think in some ways I, I made it the, the willingness to sacrifice that piece of my life in some ways perhaps signaled to me the importance of what I was setting out to do at this point. And so I actually gave up working out completely for a solid decade. And I was pretty unhealthy. It was November 2015. So not really that long ago. And it's something had just been percolating in my head where I was just like, I can't, this is not good. Like, I feel unhealthy. I look disgusting. I have no energy. Like, this is going nowhere good. And I have two little daughters. And so I just, it started actually with one of my daughters on my back and we were in the living room. And it was just like, she's laying on top of me. I was like, oh, maybe it'll make her happy if like I do a push up with her on me. So I've got like this little girl on me. I'm like, mm mm-hmm. And she laughed. And it's like, and I thought to myself, wait, I just did a push-up. And then that became like a thing that I did the next day. And then all of a sudden I was like, well, I don't have a gym I'm going to go to, but we have this playground in the back of our yard. Why don't I start doing pull-ups on their monkey bars? <laughs> so pretty quickly, November 2015 to January 2015, or 2016, so you're dealing with a month and a half in there, I had uh, bought just a, a weight rack uh, power cage for the basement in our house, had my brother bring up a whole bunch of the like rusty beat to crap weights that we had in the barn. And uh, I was like, I'm going to do this. So I, I knew a good amount about dieting. And so I started dieting because I just wanted to lose weight. I understood a lot about macronutrient ratios, so carbs to fat to protein and what I needed for someone my size if I wanted to lose a particular amount of weight at a given period rate and, and also gain back muscle. And through muscle memory, I was able to get back muscle much faster than I would have been able to build it the very first time. But after a decade off, and particularly a decade when you go from 26 to 36, your body changes, so things change. So I just started doing it, and more and more and more and more. I went from not doing anything to working out about five days a week, and my body was changing really, really rapidly. I said to myself, like, I got to find a way out of this. 
because this is too much. Like I would come home after a day of teaching and work out from 10 o'clock till midnight in the basement after being just exhausted and then have to do like work after that and waking up at crazy hours in the morning and I was weighing all of my food. It's nuts. Like everything's weighed on a food scale. And I was like, I got to find a way out, but I don't know how I'm going to get out. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me, like if I competed, it would give me a goal and then it would be done. So the only way out is deeper into the deeper darkness. Deeper into it. <laughs> you like almost you have to hit rock bottom yeah, to you, come, or you have to. Well, really, that's climb the to the, the peak of the mountain. Yeah. I, I don't know which metaphor is more apt. Sure. Well, it, it, the way of thinking about it is, you when you look your best, you feel the worst. It's horrible when you are down. Your body fat is that low. So I, I entered a show in June, and it was a, a local show, and it was. It was, called, it was a pro qualifier. So a pro qualifier, essentially, if, if you if there's enough people in your division and you win, then you, quote, unquote, become a pro. Now, this is not like a pro in anything else. Like, nobody's paying you. Like, it's not like the sponsorships come flying in yeah, and yeah. writing contracts. It's nothing like that. It's essentially just like you then get to compete at, you know, yeah. higher divisions. Notionally a pro. Yeah. I mean, in name only. It doesn't matter. So I competed in that show thinking, okay, this is it. For some set of circumstances, ultimately ended up winning. When that happened, they're like, "Congratulations, you're now a pro and pro bodybuilder." Yeah. So actually, it's called pro men's physique, is what it is, which sounds even worse. <laughs> that's it. That just, is, the, just go with bodybuilder. Yeah. The, like <laughs> the, that's much worse. The like <laughs> the the like film of embarrassment that I'm feeling. It's so <laughs> thick right now. It's just brutal. Oh my god. Um, so you do this and. And then they're like, well, there's a show, a pro show coming up in New York in September. So I was like, well, it was so brutal to get to where I was physically at that point. And the, the other show was 12 weeks away or something like that. Like, if I'm going to do this, and it's the one time I'm going to do it, I'm physically closer to it now than I'll ever want to make myself again. So I just kept going through the summer. The only way out is deeper. Deeper in. Deeper in. Deeper in. So to give you an idea. Like probably like what I feel most comfortable at weight wise is probably like around 190 pounds. Like that's probably where I feel the most comfortable. I was 166, which is just horrendous. Uh, how you feel at that point, and you have no energy um, hormonally. You're a disaster. Like it's hard to focus. Um, so I ended up competing in the pro show. Did not win that show. It's a whole different like level of competition. But then once I did that, I was done. I slowly have started to like revert back to being a normal human. It's, it's hard to <laughs> imagine, but that was only eight months ago, yeah. right? I mean, last summer. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. incredible. So you did that while having a family and having daughters and teaching and... I have a and very, a very understanding wife. <laughs> very understanding. Just talking to you, it's clear that you're a guy with like some deep core values. Right. And I think we always wonder, and this is like the part of the show that we, we like the best. We, we just wonder where did they come from? You know, where did they, they start out? And the first thing you notice when you walk into your class is you, is you say to yourself, oh, this isn't your average professor. No, you know, probably not. Where did you come from? Right. Take us back to like young <laughs> Nate Pettit. Yeah. Like where are you from? You know, what is your origin story? So I'm from a tiny town between Buffalo and Rochester, New York. Uh, it's called Medina. It's a town of about 5,000 people. And it's most 
mostly a farming community. I grew up out uh, on an apple farm. Um, I didn't realize it at the time because many of the people that I was around grew up on farms. But once I left the town, I was like, wait, everybody isn't a farmer? Like, this is this is different. Um, you were in your rural bubble. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was in some ways a really great place to grow up because your self-esteem was highly intact because there's really nothing to, to beat it down. Like, people talk about these, like, horrible middle school and high school experiences. Mine were awesome. Like, I have <laughs> nothing to complain about at all during that time of my life. What's, but, that, what's that town like, though? I mean, is it... Um... It is a wildly right-leaning, almost all-white, but not in a privileged sort of way, but in a very working-class, lower-middle-class um, way. So, for instance, in the people that were really the best off in our town were the public school teachers. So think about that, where in most cases you're like, oh, what a, what a virtuous, um, you know, the sacrifices you're making to be a public school teacher. You lived well in my community if you were a public school teacher. It was just very, very different. Uh, and when I went to college, my whole world kind of got shook up that way. I think part of where my principles come from, it comes a lot from my parents with the idea of you can only complain so much until you go and do something about it. Like, don't complain, fix it. And it was a very sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Don't, wherever you've come from, it doesn't matter. You can overcome that. It is not an excuse. And it was drilled into me at such a, an early age. Like if I, if I wanted to buy anything, it was always you had to work. And I was out working on the farm at over the summers at 11 years old. And it wasn't, at that point, it wasn't like, you know, 40 hours a week constantly, but I was exposed to it at that point. And by the time I was 12 and 13 and 14, it was, you know, my summers were spent doing that. And there was a strong encouragement to do that over break. So I spent a lot of time by myself doing manual labor. And when you were doing that as a kid, like, did you think like, this cannot be like my future? Or you just kind of thought, oh, this is just what people do? I absolutely did not want it to be my future. And I wasn't actually even worried about it being my future at the time. I think I was even at that age sort of resentful of the fact that I was doing this in, in some sense, I don't want to say forced, like it wasn't like you were forced, forced, but if you wanted any sort of approval, you, you needed to comply. And the idea was that work could kind of solve anything, just keep working. I didn't think it was as extreme when I was doing it as I do now looking back on it as a, a different experience. Like it was, I wasn't going to camps. I wasn't practicing sports. I wasn't doing those things over, over the summer. I wasn't preparing for SATs. Like I didn't even really know what the SATs and PSATs were. We just sort of showed up and took those tests. It wasn't like, hey, let's go, you know, prep for your SATs. Like the score I got on it was the score I got the first time I took it. Cold. Walked yep. in cold. Yeah. I mean, the, old, my, the prep for the SATs was having taken the PSATs the year before. You borrowed a pencil on your way. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I don't want to make the, make it sound like it was this unbelievably impoverished experience. It absolutely was not, but it was uh, difficult in a way that I, I only recognized the difficulty after the fact. What are some of the lessons that you learned from manual labor that you've carried forward to today? I mean, it is, it is almost this belief that you can just sort of muscle through anything. You just keep going. Like it's this constant, like one foot in front of the other. You, 
you just keep showing up. Like half the battle is just showing up every day and continuing to move. But it, it also, I mean, it, it gave me so much time to think because you're not using your brain when you're doing that. So I'm like ruminating on all these thoughts for eight hours a day, like by yourself. And I think in some ways like that, I developed a certain amount of resentment to where I came from because of those experiences. But also so many, like I, my work ethic, I think is so, so tightly bound to those experiences and, and seeing the role models that were my parents and their remarkable work ethics and, and the fact that they don't, they don't make excuses for anything. And I felt crazy making excuses myself. I mean, I feel a little guilty even, even divulging this story only because it could be interpreted as, as an excuse for whatever I haven't accomplished today. It's like, well, I didn't get off to the smoothest start, but it's not as if, as if everyone does. Like everyone has their own, their own set of struggles and those just happen to, to be mine. What kind of stuff did you have to do on the, on the apple farm? I mean, I assume carrying and picking apples. Well, actually, so over the summer, though, you're actually not even harvesting apples at that point. At that point, so that happens in the fall. So over the summer, you're doing all sorts of things like trimming trees, pulling rocks out of the ground, manually spreading uh, fertilizer. I spent a lot of time picking up rocks and yanking or yanking weeds out from these things called suckers that attach to the roots of apple trees and just eight hours a day going down, grabbing it, yanking it out, and onto the next tree, onto the next tree, onto so the next tree. So it's not like grabbing crab grass, which is so satisfying <laughs> <laughs> out of like a well-manicured lawn. Yeah. This is no. vastly different. This is brutal. Yeah. It was tough. Uh, it was definitely tough. There's, there's no two ways around it. But I, I didn't realize it was just my reality. I was very into weight training at that point, so I'd come home, have dinner, and then do that afterwards. So you 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 lift after you were done lifting? Yeah, it's it, there's no way that gets pulled off today. But when you're 15, 16, 17 years old, you're you, bouncy. You're you got like, enough energy to do it. You after a 10-hour physical day, then you would go lift weights. Yeah, it was. I, I don't I don't know where it came from uh, because. Looking back, I think I, I have a better understanding of, of why I was doing that. Uh, at the time, I don't, I'm not so sure I understood. I think part of it was that I felt like if I was going to be competitive in athletics, I needed to be training, and I had friends that weren't working the way that I was, and I was like, well, there's no excuse. So then I just keep working. I'll work out at night. And so that's what I would do because that's what, what I had time to do. I also I think now it was actually a way of managing anxiety in some sense because anytime if you're working out if you're weight training with any sort of intensity in order to complete what you've set out to do you need to be very focused on it in the middle of a set because you won't complete the number of reps at um, and the number of sets at a particular weight that you've set out for yourself unless you're focused and so what that always forced me to do is be entirely in the moment your mind can't wander when you're doing those things and I think I did it compulsively in, in some ways as a way of managing anxiety so it sounds almost meditative yeah yeah. I wondered what type of anxiety it was because you're work you're physically working out your body during the day, you're physically working out your body during the evening. Mm-hmm. When are you working out your brain and was it sort of an intellectual anxiety that you had? I think I think a lot of it was frustration because of what I was doing during the day. I felt like I'd wasted a day doing that. It's almost like a restlessness. Yeah. And I, I was frustrated and I felt like, well, I've done nothing to better myself today, so I'll go work out at night. As exhausting as that is. Does anxiety play a big role in your life? Yeah, I mean, a huge role. I wouldn't, I was joking with someone a while ago that when I don't feel anxious, the lack of familiarity with that state then in turn makes me anxious. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, I feel calm. And then I'm like, whoa, 
this is weird. Like, wait a minute, I don't like this. And I'm like, oh, this is making me a little anxious. Then you're like, ah, sweet embrace of anxiety. <laughs> like, I remember you. Welcome back, old friend. Welcome back. You're so fuzzy. <laughs> so it's, um, no, it's definitely been a big part of my life. It's something I've, I've struggled with a lot to varying degrees. It's something I cope with, you know, now I've gotten into to mindfulness. Training more recently is a way of trying to deal with it. I think like a lot of people have spent time in therapy just trying to to deal with it. It, it was something that, you know, in, in, in college, afterwards, looking back on my behavior as a child, I probably should have been seen someone at that point, but that wasn't sort of in the, in the choice set or the purview of, of that time and place. 2012, I had a full on, uh, like real, you know, 9.9 on the Richter scale panic attack started while I was in school here in my office. And just the, the physiological sensation of you're getting like a real shortness of breath, tingling in your hands and feet. Your your awareness is sort of moved to a different part where you feel like you're very much behind your eyes. I don't know any other way of describing it, but physiologically something was, was wrong and I felt like my vision was kind of going in and out. It was this very destabilizing feeling. And I, I stood up and I said, this isn't good. I need to get outside. Like this, you know, it all of a sudden it felt like almost claustrophobic in my office and I need to get outside. So I got outside and that helped a little bit, but because I'd never had a panic attack before, I didn't really know how to interpret what was happening. And the shortness of breath became overwhelming. The vision started to go in and out even more. It was very, very psychologically destabilizing. And it went from this idea constantly saying like, this this doesn't feel, it's a strong, strong feeling of unreality. Like things that I knew were familiar, it felt like I was looking at for the first time, even though I'd seen them a thousand times before. And it was so unnerving that I'd worked myself out physiologically to the point where uh, I was in the lobby of my building in faculty housing and I was sitting there and I'm calling my wife and she's not picking up. Uh, she was on the subway. And I'm like, I, I'm pretty sure I'm dying. I'm sure, I'm pretty sure this is what death looks like. Even saying it now, there's no way I can bring my head back to what that really felt, but I firmly believe that. And so to, in that moment, firmly believe that that's what's happening is utterly terrifying to think that, no, this is it. Like, we're T-minus, like, 60 minutes, and I'm going to be done. I'm going to expire. And so I have, I'm like, I pulled up my phone. I'm looking at, like, pictures of my kids on my phone because I'm like, if I'm going to die, like, this is the last thing I want to see. And I start yelling, and this is, you know, having met me, I would think, you know, I'm probably not quick to yell people in public. I'm no, yelling to guy. the do- totally. I'm yelling at the doorman like I'm dying, I need an ambulance. I'm dying, I need an ambulance. And this guy is great. Um, his name was Frank, by the way. Um, <laughs> hey, we're all good folks. Yeah, really <laughs> it's the it's the one name where there's a character check before you get assigned to it. <laughs> um, so he, he calls an ambulance and he, he's trying to get me to breathe and whatever and I get in the ambulance and I'm like, I'm dying, I'm, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. And it, it's just so unbelievable to talk about now and they give me an EKG and they're like, your heart's okay. And ultimately I, I pass out. 
ambulance in the streets of wherever New York, and they're asking me all these other questions. And I, but I was aware enough to realize that they became very calm. The the EMTs in the ambulance started to become very calm. And I was like, Are you guys not taking this seriously? Like I, at this point, I've calmed down enough to to just observe it rather than to react to it. But at that point, I think they had clearly figured out what was happening to me that I was not in risk of dying. But I end up in uh, you know the psych ward of one of the I think it was New York Presbyterian or something like that for for a time. And it, it was just crazy because you know my pregnant wife couldn't come in with me because you can't go in there if you're pregnant because of what could happen given the other people that are there. And I was only there for a couple hours and they checked me out and ex- explained. And, and eventually I came back down and I walked home. And But it was just such a, an unsettling, destabilizing experience that, that my mind has the capability of doing that. Like I found out something that day that I did not want to find out, which is that my mind can take me there without any sort of chemical inducement. Because there was no actual physical injury. I mean, when they checked you out, you were physically completely fine. Yeah. But your brain 100% made it real. Completely hijacked it. That you were, and you really did think, I'm I f- dead. This was not like a, you know, tongue in It was like, I firmly believe this was a crazy, terrifying to think about. Like, I, I can't in words, like, do justice to what that felt like to sort of be confronted with that. Well, that makes anxiety a pretty real thing. Yeah, it's not awesome. How do you come to accept that those physical sensations aren't, in fact, dangerous, but are a symptom of something that's in your mind? Yeah, painful but not dangerous. So I'll say a couple things on that. One, it it comes down to trust in the sense of if I trust the people that say shortness of breath and lightheadedness and tingling sensations and this feeling of impending doom are the hallmarks of an incoming panic attack, then as long as I trust what they're saying and I can conjure that up when those symptoms start to arise again, I can slowly talk it back down rather than it just completely blowing up. But there have been two instances since then where I've been able to prevent it from going completely over the top that I would not have been able to if I couldn't identify what was happening as a panic attack. How old were you when this happened? I was 32. So you had gone 32 years. Being very successful, you went to Cornell. Now you're working at NYU Stern, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, the best business school. It is. (laughs) You know, there's no argument Rank number one. Um, You know, you have a beautiful family. Everything is going well for you, yet you are still overcome by this tremendous event. Does that make you feel like this could happen to anyone? It could certainly happen to anyone. And I, I think not appreciating it is one of the ways that we're at risk for it. This notion of overconfidence and be like, well, yeah, that happens to people, but it's not going to happen to me. And for the vast majority of people, it won't happen. And that's awesome because <laughs> it sucks. I hope it doesn't happen to people. But it, it happens to more people than we know and are aware about it. And it's something that we don't talk about publicly very frequently, I think, because we see the inability to control one's mind as a, as a sign of weakness. What Whatever set of reasons, whether some sort of social stigma, we, we tend not to talk about it publicly. I try to talk about it. I don't, I don't just, you know, say like, hey, nice to meet you. Guess what happened in five years ago? Like it's, <laughs> Take this pamphlet on anxiety. It's a weird conversation starter, but I don't shy away from it because I think the more that we talk about these things and have conversations about it, the more that, A, people will get help, understand it a little bit more, and it won't be as socially stigmatizing. Having experienced something is so much different than having 
read about it and trying to understand and project yourself into that situation and empathize on a completely different level. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like, despite the fact that this was a horrendous experience, do you feel like you are now a better father, partner, teacher because you had that experience? I think because there was a moment when I truly, just for those, it was probably 10 minutes, but felt like an infinite amount of time where I really thought that this was game over. That makes you think about your choices going forward a little bit differently. And I'm sure I don't pay homage to that every day. It's led me to certain behaviors in this career that I wouldn't have chosen otherwise. I have certain principles around being a professor and what I think our duty as professors are, because that that idea of saying, what is it that I value? What mark do I want to make before I expire? I mean, it's weird to be thinking about that on th- at 37 years old, but on the other hand, I don't think it is because it raises this question of like, if not now, then when? That idea that we're the bet that we always make that we'll have the freedom to do what we want later on, I think is just like such a risky bet. And I'm fortunate enough right now that I think I can start to, to take steps that are more perfectly aligned with what I think my duty as a professor is. Let's talk about that though. I mean, with this incredible experience that gave you so much perspective, how does that change what you do in the classroom, how you prepare and what you think is most important to teach people? I don't, I don't want other people to ever have panic attacks, (laughs) but that's not an issue that I'll be able to solve. But I would like people to question why they're doing what they're doing in this. And maybe it took a, a panic attack for me to start to really question that rather than question in a superficial way. But as you guys will probably know, asking like who is driving the ship in your life is such a critical question. And why are we chasing down the careers that we are? Why do we have the priority structure that we do? What are we waiting for to start doing what we would like to be doing? In some ways, it was such a gift that I was faced with that. And my life has definitely become, I think, enriched because I've taken more deliberate steps to be true to myself. But at the same time, it's not like I'm taking dramatic risks in my life. Like I have a a very stable salary and job and everything's fine. So I'm not taking like real hardcore risks. But shame on me if I don't Mm -hmm. practice what I preach in that way. And so my hope is that with students is just start to get them to ask to be a little bit more honest with themselves about why they're doing what they're doing. My, My ultimate goal would be if someone came into business school and said they wanted to do X, for them to abandon that and then re-choose X. Because the second time you get to it, you're there for a much better set of reasons than the first time you were there. So to the extent that anything that we do in class can enable those conversations with ourselves, I think the better off we'll be. And that's why teaching is so important to me. I think for me, I have a, a bit larger focus on the leadership piece than you'll see in perhaps some of the other sections. And I think a lot of that has to do with my belief in the knowing doing gap. We we trot out all these these things that are intellectually not necessarily that challenging. Like I can bring out decision-making biases. I could bring out, here's some steps to manage conflict. I can talk about stepping forward and leading other people and you want to develop a vision, et cetera, et cetera. These things are, would be unbelievably useful if you implement them and utterly useless if we don't. And I know that's in some ways self-evident, but the reason I focus on leadership is that I, I think even if what we talk about, if, if you're 5% more likely to enact it after taking my class than you would have otherwise, you're going to be far better off. But it, at least for for me, a big portion of sort of where my drive around teaching comes from is I, I think management leadership education, unlike other subject matters, I think 
there's a big onus on us as professors to embody the material that we teach. And it's not like the finance professor can't be like, I'm sorry, I'm not embodying finance. Yeah. Like it, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily work that way or the accounting professor not particularly embodying accounting. But for me, I see that there's this really unique opportunity in management education to say, can I act in class with you guys in accordance with the very things that I'm talking about, the subject matter itself? And it's interesting to be doing a leadership class and always feel like you need to be a good leader yeah, because everyone's wa- you're like on stage with it. Yeah. It's I'm hyper conscious of that because I don't want to see hypocrisy in myself. Like why should you listen to me if I can't even embody the subject matter that I'm teaching to you guys? Like I would lose all my credibility. Well, that's a heavy that case. That's a heavy burden to, to Yeah, hold. it is. And I fail at it routinely, but that's sort of what I would aspire to. Well, it's like it's sort of an inherent irony in the entire business school education, though, right? Um, you know, we're sitting in a classroom talking about best practices in the real world. So I'm interested to hear how do you build your curriculum to push against that and to actually embody those leadership principles? Well, so for one of the things in our class, we have the, the leadership ladder, obviously, which is a, a hokey title, but the idea is the... You love alliteration. I really do, and I really screwed it up because we also have a leadership lab, and that, that was a poor choice on my part. What's with you and L's, man? I don't know. I don't know. What's next to be seen? It's... So for instance, that assignment, I'm doing it as well in terms of having a tough conversation that I didn't want to have. And then step two, which would be coaching someone through that themselves, through listening to them. And then step three, which we'll, we'll sort of reveal in a couple weeks. But they're all designed to get people out of the classroom, PowerPoint, yeah. clicking mentality. Absolutely. Right? And to just act, to do, to... Because if, if you think about leadership, would be, would be about some sort of self-knowledge about your... So if you think about emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence, two of the pillars of it are self-awareness and self-regulation. And emotional intelligence is something that's very linked to being a good leader and also having empathy and social skill. Through some of these practices around listening to another person, it it would be akin to getting feedback from your subordinates and providing them that space so that they can hear themselves. And with ourselves, to show ourselves that we can have difficult conversations that we've been telling ourselves we shouldn't have. And then to realize that when you go ahead and do it, everything's okay. Even if it goes a little bit awry, ultimately people are happy that they've done it in the first place. And so this is the practice of just making it 5% more likely that you're going to act in a situation that you wouldn't otherwise. Trying to take what we do and give you the, I guess, the self-confidence to go ahead and do it rather than me giving a rah-rah speech in front of the class. That only goes so far. Yeah, speeches are quickly forgotten. Yeah. So you're basically trying to disprove the notion that confrontation will destroy relationships, but rather the likelihood of that is far, far less than confrontation actually improving them. Yeah. And you also learn about yourself in the process of doing that. If you think about it, if we if we don't have a confrontation with someone, and it doesn't, it, when we say confrontation, it's more just a difficult conversation that you feel like you should have. You're essentially saying to yourself, as if a third-party observer of your own actions, I guess I'm not the type of person that does that. On some level, we're doing that. Yeah. I always felt like the reason that I always avoided confrontation and and difficult conversations was because I assumed a weakness in the other person Hmm. that they probably didn't have. So I was sort of projecting my own insecurities onto them and I said, oh, they probably wouldn't be able to handle what I want to say. You never want to upset people. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. You sort of, you want to 
live each day by enhancing the days of other people, you know, because that makes you happy and that makes you fulfilled. I don't want to go around just like shooting people down. Like just swatting people's like, ice cream cones out of their hands. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, you finished that? You finished with that? <laughs> I don't want to be like a, a passion evangelist. I'm like, just follow your passion. Like, like there's pragmatic concerns in life. But I think we, if you think about it this way, there's people in, in this world that have but one choice because of whatever background that they were born into, they have but one choice. We are not any of those people, but we treat it as if we have but one choice. A lot of times it's like, I have to go do this because I need to pay back loans. There's lots of different ways to pay back loans and there's plenty of jobs that pay quite well. And if you're good at what you do in most industries, things will pay quite well. Okay. So you, you teach a bunch of people that are focused really hard on, you know, moving forward in, in their careers. Mm-hmm. What do you see from this group of young adults that comes to you at Stern? You know, what's special about just that group of students that you have in any given year? No, this is just my second year with, with teaching, teaching, facilitating, being in the same classroom as uh, MBA students. But people are so much more interesting and complex than that. It's remarkable. I mean, I you're socialized to think that it, the classroom is potentially going to be an adversarial experience, particularly when you're doing a topic that's not so quant heavy. And I've found it to just absolutely not be the case. It's just very different than that. Like, I think the the average student is is so engaged and is far more introspective than I think even they, they give themselves credit for, much less we give you guys credit for. I've had so many cool conversations with students. And I mean, the big thing is like everyone's struggling with something. That's the thing you come to find is that every single student has their own like struggle that they're they're dealing with. I just I feel super fortunate to be in a position that I get to interact with a set of people that could have chosen to do so many different things and yet they chose to be here. That's not lost on me. People will be in my office or will be exchanging emails or sometimes it's even if we can't find a good time to talk it'll be a phone call and I'll get off the phone and I'll think like like what an asset to this place. In the short time that I've been a professor in the in the NBA program, I can think of two dozen students like right off the top of my head where I think like the school is so lucky to have them. Like I hope they appreciate that. But, but we're all well-rounded and wonderful people. Yeah. And beautiful. And beautiful. Stunning. And and it's hard to teach just looking out at all these gorgeous <laughs> can places I just, all the can time. I also <laughs> just say really quickly, yeah. um, Frank and I discovered that you used a similar but slightly different line in our classrooms when describing us. The story is that on on, <laughs> on Monday, I have your class on Monday, you introduced to the class, you said, you know, uh, Sherry and Frank are working on this radio show for NYU Stern. You guys should all check it out. They got voices for radio and faces for radio. And I told Sherry that story, and she said, yeah, that's interesting. He did the same thing, but he said, we, you have voices for radio and faces for video. And I said, whoa, that is not <laughs> the version that I heard. So... What's so funny is, like, I had that line in my head, and I was sure I had said it the same way when I said it in your class, but apparently I did not. Well, in my class, we said, you know, voices for radio and faces for radio. I was like, huh, that is a good joke. And then on Wednesday, I was like, hey, he gypped me a compliment, (laughs) ma'am. I meant to recycle exactly the same word in. (laughs) Well, darn. Thank you, Professor Pettit, for being here. You have told us a lot of incredible stories. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. Honestly. We hope you had fun. Yeah. And tell your professor friends, and I guess we'll see you in class. Yeah, see you guys. Yeah, yeah, we're still students. (laughs) (laughs) This is awkward. There's actually homework. There's homework, too. Yeah. (laughs) 